Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss judicious practices and genteel resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. I'm here today <laughs> with David Dickinson, PhD student at Midwestern Seminary in New Testament. And uh, we had been talking recently, and I found out some very interesting information. Uh, we were just discussing use primarily of irony and sarcasm in the New Testament. Uh, especially in Paul's letters. I just thought this would be a really fascinating window into that world uh, and thought David would be aptly suited to help us out with that. So, David, thank you so much for being on the episode today. Yeah, great to be here. I much appreciate it. Here in my uh, dungeon apartment here <laughs> on the campus of mid- beautiful Midwestern Seminary in beautiful Kansas City. Um, David, what is irony? Yeah, irony is meaning other than what you say which makes irony really difficult. Um, And so when we think about irony in the biblical text, it can maybe be a little bit dicey because if we get the interpretation wrong, uh, if we miss irony, or if we think that irony is there when it's not, then we're uh, we're wrong, and sometimes we're saying the opposite of what Scripture says. Mm. Now, I think this is right in your wheelhouse for a few reasons. Uh, One, you're studying it. (laughs) You're writing a dissertation on Paul's use of irony in 1 Corinthians. Is that the official parameters? Uh, yes, that is uh, sort of the broad parameters. I'm okay. trying to narrow it in. Someone else is writing on Paul's use of sarcasm in uh, Cross's writing, so I'm trying to narrow well, it down. Isn't a that bit. great? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, you see what I great. did there? I, exactly. I simplified it. <laughs> you you did. That's that's the only benefit I can add to this conversation, <laughs> other than asking you some good questions. Um, but the reason why is not just because you're writing about this, but because you are a dedicated New Testament student, um, excel in the languages, and work a lot with logic, rhetoric, ethics in uh, in the seminary, helping out in some of those capacities for graduate students. Isn't that right? Yes, yes. Okay. I'm doing some grading and able to help out in that area. So. Which is a little bit different than what most New Testament students would, you know, if they're like, okay, what can he help out with? They're probably going to be thinking, let's do a you know, survey class or let's work on an exegesis class together or something. Why did this happen for you? How did that come up? Uh, ethics in general. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I was looking to grade for someone and uh, Dr. Branch uh, needed a grader. And there was no PhD student in ethics who was local. And so it just happened to work out. And so that's been interesting. I also help out with Dr. Lee. So I am sort of in In New Testament Testament there with him. But um, yeah, it keeps me well-rounded, keeps me uh, concerned with the broader uh, interests and subjects that students are dealing with. And so I'm glad to help out in that way. Yeah, sure. Um, And I'm sure that plays in in some ways. Ethics, maybe not as much, but just the idea of being in a a logic and persuasive kind of an idea. Um, I think this is going to be useful. So sarcasm or irony, firstly, just saying what you don't mean, meaning what you're not saying. I can imagine that this would be really difficult, especially for people whose first language is not the text (laughs) they're reading. Yes. Yes. It's, it's very difficult. Um, Quintilian, who is uh, an orator, Um, of the second century. He's one of our main resources for rhetorical criticism. He talks about how there's basically three ways, broadly speaking, he's not trying to be too specific, but three ways to recognize irony. And one of them is delivery. 
which we don't have any access to in a written <laughs> text, whether it's our language or uh, in Greek. So, um, yeah, being removed from the culture in which this was uh, spoken and uh, the text is a, a huge factor when we come to recognizing irony and sarcasm in the New Testament. So, Sure. So before we dive into the specifics of this and maybe how Paul employs this in his first letter to the Corinthians, I want to just ask a little bit, knowing you personally, having come to know you first through a seminary context and then uh, at our church, the Master's Community Church, Kansas City, Kansas, check us out. Uh, <laughs> if you're in the Kansas City area and you don't have a church yet, then you're probably not listening to this podcast. I'm going to just <laughs> throw that out there. Um, but I've really enjoyed getting to know you. And uh, when I think of guys who are gifted for academics and clearly on that route and yet very passionate about local church ministry. I mean, you were uh, involved in church planting, you're, you're a preacher, you like to serve and in whatever capacity. Um, I've been really deeply encouraged by that and would encourage that attitude. Um, not everyone is, is gifted in, in all of those ways at once, and not everyone's going to serve well in a pastoral capacity uh, or a scholarly capacity. Um, but the attitude that I am here first and foremost as a member of a local church, this is one of the ways I serve broadly um, is through research and writing and these kinds of things. Um, I appreciate that attitude in you. And so I want to ask though, knowing your, your background a little bit, how'd you get here? Cause you started in business and baseball, <laughs> right? Yes. I uh, moved out this direction from Colorado Springs, Colorado. So um, my parents and I essentially drew a radius from Colorado Springs, about 550 miles out, looking for schools where I could play baseball because I didn't know what I wanted to study. Uh, I basically landed on business because I had been part of a, a marketing group in high school called DECA. I think you have DECA out here. And uh, I that came somewhat naturally to me. It wasn't really a passion of mine. But decided to study business and play baseball. There's not a whole lot of schools in Colorado uh, for baseball. So basically, I chose the furthest school away from that 550-mile radius. Not on purpose, but uh, it just happened to be what it was. That was Baker University, which is a small school. Uh, actually, the oldest school in Kansas, uh, 1858. It's pretty close to KU in, in Lawrence, Um but I ended up there and really wanted to play professional baseball, and that, that obviously did not happen. <laughs> um, but while I was there, God really he used several things in my life. One was uh, several friends. We, we formed a uh, campus um, Bible study group, which eventually turned into an official uh, campus group, which I became co-president of with a friend of mine. Uh, the campus ministry there, it's uh, affiliated with uh, United Methodists, and um, it, it really, um, you know, there's, I know some, uh, some Methodists, one who I've actually had seminars with here who are faithful, um, but this, this school was really preaching a gospel that was not, uh, not connected to Scripture, and uh, so I really felt burdened while I was there to preach the Word that was my passion, and about the time I was nearing my the end of my junior year uh, at Baker, I, I started to sense that maybe God was directing me to ministry. Still didn't know exactly what that looks like. I, I still don't know exactly what that's, that's going to look like for me, uh, but just came to Midwestern, 
pursued studies and serving the church, and that's uh, sort of where I am right now. Sure, sure. So you're here now. I mean, I, you know, of all the lucrative careers, you know, maybe it's baseball and second ranking is PhDs in biblical studies, <laughs> obviously. Um, and maybe followed, you know, very closely by pastoral ministry, I would say. So, uh, you know, it, it's, an, it's an obvious next step. But no, I'm glad that the Lord brought you here and has you doing what you're doing. So let's dive in a little bit to irony and sarcasm in Paul and especially in Corinthian letters and especially in first Corinthians. So kind of narrowing our scope. Um, what does that look like? What are some instances of that? How can we know that that's what's being employed here? Give us the rundown. Okay. So yeah, I'd like to focus on a couple of things with irony and sarcasm. Uh, one is, um, exegesis. We have to, exegesis is a complicated process. Uh, lots of times I think we want a basic, checklist of what to do. And there is a sense in which we need to cover our bases of word studies, of grammar, of uh, the context in which a passage is found. Uh, We have to do all that. But exegesis is very complicated. So when we come to um, irony and sarcasm, uh, we have to keep in mind that there are other things outside of the basic exegetical steps that we would take. Um, And so connected to that is background, uh, knowing the world of the first century. And this this actually, uh, we think of exeget- exegesis as sort of a complicated procedure, but it actually starts to become more natural when we get into the world of the first century, such that when we recognize how, for instance, moral correction would typically happen in the ancient world, we start to recognize what Paul's doing a little bit more easily. Um, so, Tying those things together, exegesis and backgrounds, and seeing how those are really inseparable um, can give us a start as we think about uh, recognizing irony and sarcasm in 1 Corinthians. Yes, so then what are some of the really necessary pieces of background information that we have to know to get sarcasm and irony? Uh, one, One thing, just speaking broadly, and I'll try to speak broadly and then narrow this down, is that the ancient world uh, in which the Bible was written was an honor and shame society. And a lot of people in the East especially can still resonate with this very much so. But when we think about sarcasm, um, oftentimes I get the, you know, I get a laugh when I tell people I'm writing on sarcasm. But I think in the ancient world, if you started talking about Paul's use of sarcasm, you'd get more of like a, oh, yeah. Um, because sarcasm is is used to essentially say something that seems positive, but it's actually used to engage in moral correction. And when you think about honor and shame, that starts to make sense because uh, when, for instance, the Corinthians were puffed up, that's a word that occurs often in 1 Corinthians, they are conceited, and Paul is coming to correct that, and he corrects it through the cross, which was the most shameful thing in the ancient world. A lot of his sarcasm occurs in the first four chapters when he's, he, he uses the cross to get at their, their sense of honor and uh, prestige that they were, they were going after. And so sarcasm was a natural tool to get at that. So 
1 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 8, when Paul says, well, you're, you're already rich and you're reigning without us. Um, obviously, that's a, a sarcastic way, and that's one of the more recognizable features of sarcasm, where Paul is essentially using honor. You're rich, you're reigning, but he clearly means the opposite. And so he's shaming them in a way that, that would be rhetorically very effective. Um, so honor and shame is definitely probably the biggest um, element of background for recognizing this. Are there other elements that we really ought to consider? Yeah, um, sort of narrowing down. Um, sarcasm was used, uh, we think about rhetorical criticism. It's important, thinking about how orators would use this stuff. People wonder whether Paul was rhetorically trained. I don't think he was formally trained. This this stuff is you don't want to say it's it's just in the air, like you want to get specific with Paul's influences, but it really was, in a sense, in the air. Um, orators were using sarcasm. Uh, there was a, a genre of literature called Roman satire, which really appealed to sort of a popular audience, and it was aimed primarily to correct the ills of society. And you would see sarcasm used in this way. Uh, epigrams, these short little pithy statements. I think Paul makes use of pithy statements in an ironic way. Um, and I go into that in my dissertation or plan to, I guess I should say, haven't written it yet. Uh, jokes. There's an ancient joke book from antiquity called the, uh, uh, Philogelos and just lover, love of laughter. And it's the only surviving joke book from antiquity. Um, but there's, there's some overlap between, jokes uh, in antiquity, which were often used in a sarcastic way, and uh, these writings such as epigrams, satire. Uh, you also see it in graffiti. So just think about like some guys, uh, you know, using the restroom and he writes on the wall. Some, I do not want to think about that. <laughs> some little, you know, John was here. Th those sorts of things are all over the place in uh, Pompeii, Herculaneum, these places uh, where things are well well preserved and you see these uh pithy statements sometimes sarcastic in graffiti um there's a a personal letter uh the oxyrhynchus papyri uh, is a good place if i could give a practical uh step to get into backgrounds the oxyrhynchus papyri you can you can access these things, uh, a lot of the papyri for free. If you have Logos or some other Bible software, you can um, get these translations and the original text, depending on how good you are with Greek. And there's one uh, instance where this son is writing a letter to his father, and he says, well, you did well to invite me with you to Alexandria, or not to invite you, invite me with you um, back up there. But He's using sarcasm uh, to sort of chide his father, and it's it's this uh, really interesting... Basically passive-aggressive family issues Basically. from the first century. Basically. Okay. Yeah. So these are real people um, whose culture was different from ours and yet um, retained some kind of just uh, general and uh, to them universal... Forms of communication that included things like satire, things like sarcasm, things like irony. We do well to notice that in the text. 
how do we go about discerning that? How, how can we know? Is it just purely, I have to understand what's, oh, I need to already know what's going on, in which case I have to have an identifiable um, sections. It's almost like we're doing redaction criticism or something here, but a little bit differently. I mean, it's rhetorical criticism. I know that, but it's almost like, okay, we have to discern first, which of these statements are not ironic, which might be easy to do, might not be. I'll let you weigh in on that in a mm-hmm. second. Um, and from those pieces of information we have about the people, the setting, um, we can then determine, okay, these ones would not have matched up. And therefore mm-hmm. this is an ironic, sarcastic, uh, rebuke of sorts. Is that is that how we go about it? Is it that simple? Um, there's a number of things. Uh, um, Matthew uh, Pollock, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, he's done a master's thesis and he's actually working on his PhD dissertation. But one of the things that he contributed to my thinking that I think is really helpful is that sarcasm can be indicated by any number of means or by just one of them. So we need a tool belt of things. One of them is, uh, think about this in English. Uh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. That's that's sort of entered into uh, the our vocabulary as you know we expect it to be sarcastic. In Greek, there is there is a sarcastic word. It's not always sarcastic. Just as we can say yeah, right, and not be sarcastic. But in Greek, there's a, a word kalos, and uh, it it tends to pop up in these sarcastic utterances. So it was in that letter I just referred to. You did well not to invite me with you to uh, Alexandria. Uh, Jesus actually uses this word in Mark 7, 9. You do well to uh, set aside the commandments of God to uphold the traditions of men. And I think Paul uses the word that way too, at least at least once, if not more. But uh, recognizing certain vocabulary words that would have... that. They would have caught just like we catch, yeah, right. And uh, really just being in the text helps us with that. Also, hyperbole, if if you see something where the author is just really over-exaggerating, uh, exhibit A would be Paul's, you're reigning without us and you're rich. And, you know, he's just, he's piling on these grand terms. Um, adverbs, uh, kalos is an adverb. Adverbs plus adjectives sort of... Uh, super abundantly, or uh, Paul says the super apostles in Second Corinthians, uh, these adjectives that sort of um, overdo it in a way, those are things that would uh, signal sarcasm. So Okay. And now Paul is not exactly known to mince words anyway, right? And sometimes he's very straightforward with that. I'm thinking about his letter to the Galatians. I don't... I. I would have to go read it and think about, is there irony and sarcasm in here? But when he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Um, not exactly a, a, a sarcastic <laughs> statement, right? He's getting at them more directly. And so is there any reason um, particular that, that you've picked up on in your studies or you've seen in this circumstance or in this circumstance that an author would be more inclined to be direct mm-hmm. or more inclined to be sarcastic? Yes, definitely. Um And I I mentioned this briefly earlier, but if I told someone in the ancient world that I was studying Paul's use of sarcasm, I don't think I would get so much a laugh Mm -hmm. as sort of a, oh. Um, And maybe there would be a laugh because there is definitely humor in it. Um, But the reason you'd get the oh is because sarcasm is used for moral correction. 
And so in Galatians, there actually, there is sarcasm in, in Galatians. And um, Dan McNamara is actually working on a dissertation that um, is not directly related to this issue, but um, he has talked to me a little bit about some sarcasm that he senses toward the end of, of Galatians. Um, and I won't give away what he's, uh, he's doing there. But yeah, I think in Galatians 2, when Paul says, uh, those who were esteemed pillars or those who who seemed to be something. Mm-hmm. I think he's being a little bit sarcastic. And I don't think he's like he's trying to stick it to the apostles by any means, but he's he's trying to say, listen, and he says this directly, uh, what they were means nothing to me. God doesn't receive face. God doesn't show favoritism. So I think he uses some sarcasm there, not to get at the apostles, but to get at the um Galatians who were perhaps lining up behind leaders that they shouldn't have. Sure, sure. So then you've already mentioned some instances kind of in passing in 1 Corinthians. What are some of the more um, interesting ones that you've done a little bit more in-depth study on? What's what's maybe just, let's just start with one and see how far we get here. What's, what's one instance in 1 Corinthians that it it really does clearly seem like irony, it clearly seems like sarcasm, and it really does have an important bearing on our understanding of the text. Um, yeah, I'll turn to one here real quick. It's uh, 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen through 19, and this is, uh, talk about importance for interpretation. Uh, my dad actually teaches a Sunday school class at his church, and he came to this, and the commentators were divided over whether mm-hmm. it was sarcastic or not. And uh, I, th- I think it is, and um, I'll just go to it here. This is uh, 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. 18. Uh, For in the first place, Paul says, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are esteemed may become evident among you. And I always understood this text uh, for a long while to be, okay, Paul's saying, well, yes, there need to be divisions so that those who are approved uh, should be evident. So divisions are, are uh, helpful for, for that reason. And certainly we could maybe apply that to a modern context and say, yes, sometimes a division needs to happen because there's people preaching a false gospel. But I think what Paul is getting at here is that uh, he uses that word approved or esteemed. And again, this is uh, tying exegesis to background, just the way words uh, work. As we follow along in the context, we come to verse 28, and Paul really gets at the problem uh, with the Lord's Supper, and people are they are using their esteemed or approved, we might say, status to shove aside those who are of lesser status. And Paul comes to this verse, verse 28. He says, but a man must esteem himself. And he uses the same word that he used back there, those who are esteemed. A man must esteem himself, and so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. So it seems that Paul maybe is a little bit ambiguous. Yeah, there need to be divisions for those who are esteemed among you. But then he says, well, let a man esteem himself this way (laughs) to judge the body rightly. And that instance is a little bit more, I think, nuanced. And commentators are sort of uh, divided over 
whether it is sarcastic, but only uh, a knowledge of how words are used, background, and the situation going on uh, will help us to sort those things out. Sure, yeah. Oh, man. This is, uh, I think, tough, but I think also really interesting. And I think that uh, there's good reason for any particular commentator to be swayed one way or another on that. So I think it it definitely bears on us as those who want to exegete Scripture rightly, to rightly divide it, as we say, cut it straight, you know, however you want to get into that uh, pastoral text. And it, it doesn't come easy, I don't think. And so I'm glad for the work, and I think you're right, that really the what's going to do it for us in understanding these things is having a better understanding of how language was used mm-hmm. Um, and I, and that's just invaluable. And, uh, I trust God to give us sufficient understanding of the text and a sufficient understanding of his word. Um, even, you know, in seasons where, you know, pockets of the church didn't really have access to, uh, this kind of historical understanding of what had been going on, um, and yet preserving us and keeping us. But if this is God's word and we want to interpret it rightly and we're charged to interpret it rightly, then we need to be digging into this. I think that's deeply important, yes. um, and I'm looking forward to the rest of your work here. I'm, I, I hope we'll be uh, we'll be doing an interview about your uh, published dissertation here in two, three ish years. Yeah, usually we'll see takes how it goes. a little while, but <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll we'll work on that uh, in in the future. But I'm excited for that. Thank you for sharing that with us. I do want to hit one more thing before we sign off here. As someone who has just finished, and I, I know several of our listeners will be in the in a PhD program in an American style evangelical seminary. I know that's going to be um, a, a specific block here, and I think there may be principles that will be just as instructive for those who are maybe in seminary right now or who are pretty far removed from formal theological education. But I think this will especially be helpful for those seminarians, uh, those PhD students who are done with the seminar phase moving into the dissertation phase. That's where you are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as someone who's not yet written a dissertation and has this massive task before <laughs> them, I just lovingly remind you of that right now. Yeah, I, don't, I know you don't need anyone to remind you. Uh, what are you saying? Wow, I am so relieved that I did this in my seminars. And then, you know, secondly, wow, I, I really wish I had been thinking more along these lines or I had picked up this practice. Yeah, um, as far as as what I'm I'm glad I did. Uh, there were a couple of times where I was able to write toward my dissertation, thinking toward that way. That that's very helpful, um, and uh, connected to that, just having an idea of what you're going to write on early on, I think, is very important. Um, when you have to scramble to think of something or think of some way to nuance a conversation that um, you really don't have an idea about until you get to your dissertation phase, that's going to make it a whole lot worse. So I would say for people who are getting into the program or maybe thinking about it, try to have something um, that in just maybe your reading of the text, you're, you're in the Greek and you think, I don't think someone's, I don't think anyone's dealt quite quite fully with this issue or um, you're reading background literature and you come to something and you just notice the way words are used and you think that sounds like Paul or that sounds like John. I kind of want to investigate that. Uh, Have something like that 
that's really going to excite you that you think is going to be a genuine contribution and have that early on. So I'm glad I did that. Uh, as far as things that I would have, uh, done differently, um, I mentioned I, I got to write a couple of papers that were thinking toward my dissertation about sarcasm. I did one in James and one with Greek grammar, actually, uh, word order. How does that affect sarcasm recognition? Um, but wish I had done a little bit more in in that vein. I had one opportunity, one other opportunity to to write toward my dissertation, and I chose to to focus on an interest, uh, something else that I was interested in, that I actually gave some thought to uh, writing a dissertation on, um, and that was fruitful, and I enjoyed doing it. But you know, this is a, a season of life and you have the rest of your life to research other things. So, um, yes, as much as we want to be, uh, broad and, uh, I think we should encourage, uh, go as deep as you can, but try to be broad in your study of scripture as well. Um, try to, in this season of life, focus in on, on figuring out that problem that needs to be solved, uh, that needs to be addressed and, and really focus your time as much as possible on that. Okay, so as far as PhD studies go, I think we can boil this down to right toward your dissertation. You'll have time to study other things later. Yeah. Um, and to get good feedback. Always get good feedback, which is another reason why, and I've had this conversation many, many times, um, but I think this American model of a couple of years of seminars and a couple of years of diversity in your study um, can be really beneficial to make you into a writer, hopefully make you into a good researcher in some ways that, um, grad studies can't sometimes just depending on what your program is. So, man, I appreciate this. I think this is really, again, I think this is important. I think this is helpful. I'm excited to hear more about how things go with you and I wish you well with the rest of the process, man. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Mm -hmm.